Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am Haley Lyra, and today I'm actually going to be covering an episode about twins. Both were tried separately for their part in the same crime, but only one was found guilty. Oddly enough, the guilty verdict went to the twin with the more rebellious spirit, and the innocent verdict went to the more conservative Southern Belle. Is there such thing as a good twin and a bad twin? Maybe. So before I jump right into it, I for sure want to thank you guys so much for listening to Storytime Podcast. I love doing this. It's just become this fun, odd hobby of mine. I started this amid the pandemic before I had a job. And now that I've had a job, it definitely is a load sometimes to take on, but it's so worth it. It's so fun. Thanks so much for listening. I totally love it. Let's just jump right in though. So this took place May 1992 in Huntsville, Alabama. A woman named Betty Wilson called 911. Betty had come home and saw that her home looked broken into, she said, and her husband was upstairs lying on the floor. So she ran to a neighbor's house to dial 911. She probably ran to a neighbor's in case maybe an intruder was still there or something like that. But... The big question about this is, did Betty already know that her house was broken into? And that is because her husband, Jack Wilson, was worth $6 million. Whoa, and this is in 1992. And she really didn't care much for him, and everybody kind of knew that. So when Jack was found 9.15 at night, beaten to death in the hallway of his home upstairs, police found Betty in her story for a number of reasons, which I'll get to later very suspicious. I'm going to first start with the life of the twins, Betty and Peggy, you know, growing up and stuff. So they were born in 1945, Gaston, Alabama, and Betty was the second twin born. They were not identical. They were fraternal twins. Peggy, the firstborn twin. Now she was angelic, gorgeous, very popular, made homecoming and beauty queen in high school very traditional southern charm something that is really admirable in the south especially in this era it's still super admirable for you know a woman to be a real southern belle they're they're in Alabama too so Betty was a free spirit more of a wild child definitely more rebellious she was not a southern debutante which was kind of frowned on giving the time area and the location and then her perfect sister who never rebelled or really bucked the system like Betty did but in their own way they were both popular this isn't like pretty sister ugly duckling ugly duckling murders you know what I mean nothing like that so it was really interesting to me that these character traits actually followed them through their entire lives Peggy had a really quiet, quaint life, and Betty was more of a socialite, living a more fabulous, fabulous life. Despite their differences, though, they were extremely close sisters. Like, they could almost feel when something was wrong with the other one, like a sixth sense or something. Physically feel it. Peggy married really young. She married her Baptist church choir director right out of high school, and then they immediately moved to a small town where Peggy was a first grade teacher, which she loved and she thrived at her job. Totally suited her personality, I guess. 
Betty, she moved to Huntsville to get a nursing degree. And the only reason she got a nursing degree was because she had her eye on the prize. She had a goal that she was going to marry a really rich doctor. And she did meet a really lucrative doctor. His name was Jack Wilson. And they met in 1978. They married shortly after she quit working. And he lavished her with whatever she wanted. But they weren't like madly in love. Jack worked all the time because he was a doctor. And they began to slowly have sex less and less frequently. In 82, which is four years into their marriage, Jack had a surgery and that required him to have a poop bag attached to the outside of your body that you have to change. And it totally turned her off so much that she decided that she was never going to have sex with him anymore. Like, ugh, she couldn't do it, which is so sad. It's so sad. Like, I get it. It's a poop bag, but my goodness, that's just cruel. So she started to drink heavier and heavier and she decided that she was going to start going around and having sex with other men and Jack her husband actually eventually gave her an ultimatum he told Betty if she didn't stop drinking he was going to divorce her supposedly he could give a rat's ass about the affairs or maybe he didn't know or maybe it was just an uncomfortable topic for him because he knew she wasn't interested in sex with him or maybe he had a performance thing. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he really only cared about the alcohol. Now, Betty did still drink. I think she hit it more and she did join AA. Jack decided that he really wanted to respark the relationship and he was going to take her on a week-long vacation to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Upon hearing this good news, all Betty could think about was like, how the hell am I going to get out of going? I do not want to go with him. I'm going to have to go a whole week without sex because remember, she's still having sex with other men. No alcohol because Jack thinks I'm not drinking. You know, I'm going to AA. And so she really doesn't want to go. She couldn't handle it. And so she's like, fuck it. I'm going to come up with a plan to get out of going on vacation. She sounds like a teenager. She sounds like a teenage girl. So... On the morning of May 26, 1992, that is the day that Jack was found deceased, Betty Wilson said that it started a normal day. She got up, went shopping, and bought a pair of really bright floral tennis shoes, stopped in at the tanning salon, got in the tanning bed, went back to the stores for a little bit more shopping, and then straight to her AA meeting. Now, her AA meeting was a night meeting. It ended after 9 p.m., so she literally shopped all day long. She didn't get home until like 9.20, and that is when she said she found her husband dead in their home in the hallway upstairs. She then ran to her neighbor's house, called 911, and apparently she was really, really convincing. So just to give you a rundown, her husband had been really badly, badly beaten to death. His head was caved in. His extremities were broken. It was awful. Apparently, he was beaten to death with a metal bat that was left near his body, which was in the hallway upstairs. Now, Betty claimed it was a robbery or a break-in, but the house did not fit that description at all. There had been no robbery, no sign of a break-in, nothing was ransacked. I mean, Jack's wallet still even had all his credit card. It was obviously not a robbery and not a break-in. This made Betty the prime suspect, although she did have an alibi because she shopped all day and attended her AA meeting. After some digging around, police try and build a timeline. 
they find out that Jack got off work at about 4 p.m. He came home, changed, did whatever he did. Then he came outside and he used a baseball bat to drive a sign into his yard, his front yard, around 4.30. It was some kind of political campaign sign. Then he goes, he gets out a stepladder, takes down a smoke alarm, and the smoke alarm that he took down was actually still sitting on his bed at the time he was found. But he set it down on his bed like maybe he was going to tinker with it or change the batteries. And it is likely that is when he was surprised by somebody in the hallway who then attacked and murdered him with the bat that he used to drive in his yard sign. Very weird they wouldn't have their own weapon. Okay, so police put all this together. They get this timeline together, and they go back to the police station, and they're like, oh, shit, okay. But they pretty quickly get a tip, and the tip is saying that they heard about a murder in Huntsville, Alabama, and they think that they might know who it was. The man who they said did it was named James White, and apparently the person calling in had heard someone bragging about a murder someone being James and that they that James was planning to commit murder on a doctor James was drunk at the time and the conversation actually took place a week before Dr. Wilson was murdered so when the person found out about this murder of a doctor they put the pieces together and called the police now this was a huge break in the police's investigation they looked up this James White guy and he did have a criminal record he was 42 not only had he had scrapes with the law, but he'd also had a history of mental health issues and concerns. And they decide they're just going to bring him in and they just sit him down and they say they want to know all about the murder. At first, James denied anything. When they pressed, he even denied knowing Betty or Peggy or anything. But he eventually cracked. And what he said was really odd to me. I just wasn't expecting this to be the way things unfolded. So he said that he actually befriended Betty's twin, Peggy. And he met her doing work at the school where she taught. And he actually then became her personal handyman. And he did a few things around her house. Mm-hmm. Then James met Betty. And both the women approached him, Betty and Peggy together, about hiring James to murder Jack Wilson, Betty's husband, the doctor. They were offering to even pay him. But they liked to work their way up to this. Like, first, Betty would talk on the phone with James a lot, like a lot, which I think is already kind of strange. There must have been something, like, sexual between all of them, isn't that's just my guess. So... After these long phone calls, she would slowly start dropping hints about how she'd like to see James kill her husband, followed by saying, oh, hypothetically, and these hypothetical conversations begin to progress and progress about how much she would pay him, how it would be done and things like that. And if finally they settled these hypothetical conversations with a hypothetical price of $5,000. Half of that amount was actually exchanged to set this plan in motion. They then later provide James with a gun and an all-paid trip for supplies. And then while he was out on his trip for supplies, this is when they exchanged the $2,500. And they exchanged this with a library book. So what they did was like she put the money in her checked out library book and then gave the book to James. And a second exchange of 
money would later occur between Betty and James. So this was obviously intentional and premeditated plan is what James is laying out. He's saying, yeah, I met the twins and then slowly they coerced me into killing Jack and they even paid me already. So he cracked. He gave it all up, the whole story. Wow. The reason that she chose the date, May 26, was because the next day, her and Jack were supposed to leave for a week-long getaway to Santa Fe. I find it strange, and so did investigators and probably everybody else, you guys will, when Jack was found dead, not a single bag was packed for their trip. Now remember, they found Jack, she found Jack, at 9.20 p.m. at night, okay? She knew dang well she wasn't going to be going on that trip because there's no way she waited that long to pack her suitcases. I mean, give me a damn break. That's ridiculous. This story became a Huntsville sensation because Betty had made herself into quite a well-known socialite. Everyone was casting suspicion on Betty and said that she'd always been a gold digger. Her husband was worth $6 million when he died. They all know she's a gold digger and now her super rich doctor husband has been murdered. Okay. So both Peggy and Betty were actually charged because James agreed to a lesser sentence of life in prison with the possibility of paroles after only seven years. Only if he testified against Betty and Peggy in their trials. Wow. I mean, he literally took the bat and beat the man to death and he gets a plea deal of seven years to testify against Betty and Peggy. Okay. So Betty went on trial first and basically this was her defense that she just didn't do it and to break down the witness James White and show that he was an awful person with a criminal record and thus an incredibly uncredible witness but James didn't have to be a super outstanding human being he had proof that he'd met with Betty and exchanged money there was a witness in the store when she exchanged the book along with other evidence that held up his testimony that was pretty credible remember I said that the money Betty gave James was inside of a library book that Betty checked out to her name (laughs) and guess what that book was in possession of James White in his pickup truck so then in her trial they go to Betty's drinking problem her infidelity, how accustomed she was to her lifestyle and repulsed by her husband she was, and all these tie into a motive from the prosecution. March 3rd, 1995, Betty was actually found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So next up was Peggy's trial. I wouldn't be feeling too good if I was Peggy. I would be pretty nervous. A lot of people thought that Peggy's trial was going to be an exact rerun of Betty's, right? How could Betty be guilty and Peggy not be guilty? So, James White was put on to testify in Peggy's trial, too. However, Peggy was not a drunk floozy. She was wholesome. She was a married school teacher who did not give off the vibe that she could do something evil. And the jury actually soaked it up. And they found Peggy not guilty. Meaning, evidence was insufficient. Maybe concealing a crime or conspiracy charges, but I guess, you know, she really wasn't guilty of murder. The jury only deliberated for two hours in Peggy's trial. 
Peggy later did an interview with WAFF 48, and this was back in 2006 in November. So it was 15 years ago, and she says that Betty is innocent. She said Betty was completely beside herself when Jack was murdered, and like she was in total shock. Peggy says that there's no way Betty had a part of his murder, and she actually referred Jack to Betty for some work that he was supposed to go over there for, and he never even showed up. James didn't. So Peggy is insinuating that James White never even made it to Betty's house and that he's making this whole thing up. He is a liar, and he killed Jack Wilson himself so that he could frame the twins, I guess. Hmm. In prison, it is said that Betty writes to her supporters and she works sewing. Hmm. And James White actually should be eligible for parole this year. I hope he never gets it. I hope he never gets it. I mean, to beat someone to death with a baseball bat for money for $5,000 to the point where their face is deformed, that's scary. Like, that's really scary to me. Something really shocking was that Betty actually got married. In May of 2002, they did like a 10-year anniversary 48-hour news special about this. And it was actually about Jack Wilson's death. And a gentleman named Bill Campbell saw this special and he could not believe that Betty was charged. And so he began writing her. And like I said, she writes to her people who write her. And he eventually began to visit her like two times a month. So three years after him initially writing her and sparking this correspondence and outrage at her conviction in the summer of 2005 Bill proposed to Betty and in 2006 they were actually married interesting thing is they were allowed nine people to be a part of the ceremony and Peggy Betty's twin was her maid of honor they said it because it was a wedding prison that they actually had to cut the cake open before they were allowed to bring it into the prison facility but they let them bring in a cake which is more than I thought they would do and it said that they had a two-hour reception following the wedding where the group got to eat cake and drink Diet Dr. Pepper and Diet Mountain Dew do I think Betty did it yeah oh my gosh yeah she definitely hired that man to do it I don't think Peggy should have gotten charged guilty for murder and or gone to prison for the rest of her life, but I do think that Peggy should have gotten some kind of trouble. I mean, she did link her up with a murderer. Anyway, guys, I actually have another story for you. This story is about the Gibson twins. It's not a true crime story. It's just really crazy. It's really weird. And I think you guys would find it. Ah, I don't know. Let's just do it. So I stumbled across this story just in like a YouTube vortex of just going and going, you know. And the Gibbon twins, June and Jennifer, were part of an immigrant family. So their parents were from Barbados. Barbados is a Caribbean island, but they did relocate to the UK in the 1960s. The twin girls, June and Jennifer, were born in 1963, and they actually had two older siblings and one younger sibling. So they had a sister named Greta, who was six years older than them, and a brother named David, who was four years older than them. They also had a younger sister named Rose. I'm not sure how much younger she was than them. The family first moved to England, and then they relocated to Wales in 1974. 
everybody knew who they were because they were literally the only black kids there. And they were severely ridiculed and bullied to the point where literally the twin girls got out of class every day early in hopes that they could avoid being taunted and bullied. So there's a lot of reasons they were bullied, probably because, like I mentioned, for one, they were the only black children in Wales. They also had a severe speech impediment that got worse over time. But not only did they have an impediment, they also spoke a really sped up English based Creole language that they got from, you know, their parents were from Barbados. So this made it even harder, I think, for people to understand them. Eventually, they morphed their speech impediment into this like really, really sped up fast paced Creole English language that like nobody else could understand anymore. And they became reclusive. They became completely reclusive and got to where they literally only spoke to each other. And for a while, they spoke to their youngest sister, Rose. They would completely isolate themselves from the rest of their family in their room. And they even would like video record them playing with dolls and just like these fantasy dress up games for hours. When Rose was 11, they eventually quit talking to her too. She moved out of their bedroom and Rose said that she was really, really upset about this. Not only did they not speak to anybody at school, their younger sister Rose, they also did not speak to their parents and they rarely even ate dinner with them. They normally just ate in their bedrooms together alone. They wouldn't eat or drink in front of people as much as possible, as long as they could avoid it, they would. Despite the fact that they literally refused to read and write, they stayed in school. And in 1974, it was suggested by someone coming to do, I think they were doing immunizations or something, but they suggested that the girls be seen by a child psychologist due to how reclusive they were. I mean, they were basically mute to everybody else. They wouldn't really respond to people. They were classified as a type of mute and transferred to a special ed education institution. It was kind of like, I don't think that the girls stayed there 24-7. I'm not sure, though. I think they did have rooms there. So it was some type of boarding school, I think. Now, the only thing the old school said was that, to the new school, was that the girls were like completely mute unless they were on their own. They rarely spoke face-to-face to anyone else, but would sometimes respond to writing, and they gave them no idea of what their education level was. They kind of just deemed them not wanting to deal with them. Like, here, take these mute kids. They're weird. So... The new school thought to put in microphones and like a two-way mirror where the girls did their classroom work, not in their rooms, I don't think. And they discovered that the twins were actually speaking to each other regularly and that they could speak English. It was just really sped up and they had an impediment was all. Until this point, nobody really knew exactly what the girls were speaking sometimes. Like they couldn't decipher it. I think... This probably had a lot to do with the impediment and the accent because their parents have a strong Caribbean accent. So pile an impediment on with an accent that's unfamiliar to Wales and they're the only black children and this is in the 70s. Yeah, I would say they were just like, please take these kids. Nobody took the time to figure out what they were speaking and the whole time it was sped up English. That's my whole point. They spent their whole entire childhood bonding and creating this world where they were the only ones and they blocked everyone else out. 
And at some point when they reached their adolescent age, they decided that they really, really, really needed to find a way to separate. It was so weird how close they were and there's correspondence between them. And it's basically them going back and forth, deciding that one of them should stay in the current facility that they're in and the other one should leave. And they were never going to be able to do anything normal if they're going to stay together as twins. Only could go on to lead normal lives if they were apart. By the way, I said there was correspondence between them. The twins could read and write. They actually wrote a lot in journals and they wrote letters to each other a lot. And their letters and their journals are well thought out, um, well written. They were not ignorant and it doesn't seem like they had a true mental disorder. They did not seem to have any kind of delay mentally. It's almost like they were playing a weird game doing this. Anyway, they're writing back and forth to each other, trying to decide who's going to leave, who's going to stay, and that they could only live a normal life and speak to other people and go on about themselves if they were separated. So the people over their care, their psychologists and people at the institution decided that they were going to let the girls pick, June and Jennifer, which one was going to stay and which one was going to leave. They did agree, though, that separating was a good idea. I just don't think they realized that June and Jennifer would never be able to really make the decision. When it came time for June and Jennifer to decide who was leaving and who was staying, the staff said that the girls actually burst into a huge argument, like out loud, where everybody could hear them, which was probably the most shocking part. And June at one point was literally screaming at Jennifer, you are Jennifer, you are Jennifer, you are Jennifer. And everybody was shocked. They were like, what? Now, Jennifer wrote in her diary that June couldn't be her real twin because June didn't have her looks or mind or anything. She basically was already disassociating herself from June. And this is in Jennifer's diary. Some point, and I didn't quite understand if it was stemming from the argument or the decision of who has to leave. Like maybe she just didn't want to deal with it. But June just totally checked out one day. She just went almost catatonic. Like she doesn't eat. She won't change her clothes. She's just sitting on her bed in a catatonic state. Her nose is literally running and she won't wipe it. She won't get up and go to the bathroom. Hospital staff are literally wiping her face for her. She wouldn't do anything. And they said it was like a game. It was like a game that they played. And the staff seemed to say that June and Jennifer just couldn't break out of it. If these twins didn't speak and, it, you know, and they continue to go on, they turn like, at this point, they're preteens. So what's going to happen to them if they turn 15 or 16 was the psychologist's concern in this documentary. They were talking about if they go on like this, they're eventually going to get assigned to other doctors that are probably going to misdiagnose them as something else, you know, as having like schizophrenia was a main one that they were afraid the girls would get diagnosed with, which would be a misdiagnosis. So at 16, they left the institution completely. They had this pact at this point that they were never going to speak to anybody else. And they went back home and they just locked themselves up in their room together. They put their disability money and got typewriters and decided that they were going to write novels. And they wrote really creepy novels. And for a couple years, they literally did that. They just wrote and played dolls. 
and somehow they met these American rebel boys. Now they didn't speak to people, so I think they like left them a note. Um, it's very confusing, but at some point they were exchanging letters with the boys. And if I'm not mistaken, they would like leave the letters in abandoned houses. And so the boys would leave them a letter and then they'd go pick it up and they'd leave the boys a letter. The boys were bad news. They were like into petty crimes and this rubbed off on the girls and the girls had this weird infatuation with them. The sisters even began fighting over them and it was not good. It was not good. They fought physically about this and they literally got to the point where they said that they wanted to kill each other and they started trying to drown each other in a river over the boys. So I think it was more than that though. I think it was over the boys. I think it was over this stupid pact, this not talking to anybody and these weird psychological games they'd been playing their like whole life. But Neither of the girls were successful in drowning each other, and the boys actually eventually moved back to America, which totally devastated them. Like, their hearts were broken. So, in the 1980s, the girls began experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Um, They started to commit petty crimes, and they actually burned down a retail building. And nobody was in it. Nobody died either and nobody was hurt but because of this they actually ended up in a high security mental hospital with an indefinite detention meaning they had no release date so this was a pretty big deal because you know most juveniles would probably get a couple years for a crime like this maybe maybe and the twins though it would have been detrimental to their mental health to separate them and send them to juvenile facilities like that So they fought for them to go to a mental hospital. However, when they sentenced them to an indefinite period, the girls ended up being locked in that high security mental facility for 11 years. Okay. And in those 11 years, of course, they'd had many diagnoses. Yes, they did get diagnosed as schizophrenic. They decided the twins themselves that it was going to have to be them forever or one of them was going to have to die before they could ever go back to normal all these years even when they lived with their family they did not speak to their family okay so they are have been totally isolated for decades and they were trapped in a cycle when they got to the high security mental facility where they were unable to cope apart from each other like If you put them in separate rooms, they'd completely withdraw from anything and everything. But if they were together, they would totally fight and still be completely withdrawn from other people. They would just be more active and normal versus catatonic when they were alone. So their reclusivity seemed to be more of a habit. Like they were stuck together and couldn't live their own lives, but they also annoyed each other and wanted to be away. It was so weird. Now... This became a really big deal because, like I said, most juveniles would only get a couple years for this crime. And these girls had 11 years in a mental health facility basically because they were mute. This story actually got picked up by a journalist. It became a really big deal. And at some point within that period of this becoming a big story, the girls had also made a lot of progress. Like they slowly learned to communicate a little bit to other people like they could communicate to attorneys and doctors a little bit more one-on-one and they learned I think to live in separate rooms but they still called each other 
and they wrote letters to each other every day, but they also started repairing their relationship with their parents in their last couple years um, of the 11-year stint at the mental health facility. A month before their 30th birthday, they got news that they were finally going to get to leave the maximum security place they were at, and they were going to go to a medium security facility. So this is great progress. Like I said, they lived in separate rooms. They made progress in communicating. They rekindled relationships with their family, and even verbal communications with other people were improving and becoming more consistent. I saw in a documentary, like I said, they started making phone calls to their home, to attorneys, like they were getting with the shit. The day before their departure, you know, one month prior to their 30th birthday, something that they fought really hard to go, Jennifer wasn't really feeling good that day. And during their ride to the new place, Jennifer actually put her head on June's lap. They thought that she was just going to take a nap. But when they got to the new facility, Jennifer could not be woken up. She was immediately taken to the hospital and she actually died from a sudden inflammation of the heart. I mean, this is so bizarre because everything that I've found about these twins and that has been really drilled in, even the twin that survived this whole situation, June, said that they had a pact that basically they could only talk to each other and it wasn't going to be until one of them died that the other one was going to be able to live a normal life. So it's almost like Jennifer gave up her life for June when they were finally released from that facility. So Jennifer's older sister said in an interview that they blamed the mental institution for neglecting Jennifer. It had to do with medication errors that probably caused her immune system to act in a way that caused her heart to enlarge suddenly. But regardless, June did go on to learn to speak and communicate clearly and live a normal life. In 1994, she was released on parole, the mental hospital, and she'd been staying in mental hospitals for 13 years, basically like her whole adulthood. She'd been locked up. It's like the twins had this really strange omen and they knew it. Like they could only speak to each other until one of them was gone. It's so weird. June says that she's really thankful, you know, to have survived it, which is so odd to me. It's almost like they were destined or felt they spoke it into existence that they were destined for one of them to die for the other one to live a fulfilled life. But Netflix could totally do a series on this. And I think they should give it the same tone that they gave the television show nurse ratchet. If you like storytime podcasts, you would definitely like the show nurse ratchet. Anyway, I found that story about them super bizarre. There was blood work done and it showed that there was no, poisoning or medication or anything in Jennifer's system that would have caused this to suddenly happen to her. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast, and I will talk to you next week.